This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Justin Brierly. So he is the former host of Unbelievable, the radio show and podcast on Premier Christian Radio in the UK. And we get into why he's the former host of that. He's also the author of Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian, and his brand new book, which is the center point of our entire interview today, which is this book here, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. This is his third appearance on the podcast. He's been here on episode 189 and episode 322. But this podcast, it's one of my favorite conversations that we've done this year. Part of it is because we scheduled a lot of time, and so I didn't feel like I couldn't ask follow-ups or I couldn't really weave in and out of the book, but it really is a fantastic book. And in this interview, we talk about the rise and fall of new, new atheism, why that happened, why the four horsemen of atheism were considered to be these, these paragons of, of intellect and virtue, and then it was just kind of found wanting, uh, how Matthew Arnold's The Sea of Faith kind of features very prominently in the scaffolding of this book. We talked about the, uh, I guess, the different conversations that he's having with these secular folks like a Jonathan Haidt or Jordan Peterson or Douglas Murray, and how they have a reverence for Scripture, even though they don't have a, I guess, typical belief in the stories of scripture, if that makes any sense. So we definitely get into a lot of that. We talk about the cowardice of a lot of the the four horsemen, especially guys like Richard Dawkins, not debating people like William Lane Craig, just kind of coming out of that cowardice, how the kind of the woke movement cannibalized new atheism, which is hilarious. And I love it. And I'm here for it. But then just how new atheism wasn't speaking to young men. But people like Jordan Peterson, who has a deep respect for Scripture and reverence for Scripture, were speaking to young men. But that wasn't it. We, we get into a lot of other stuff about, uh, I'm just trying to remember everything that we talked about because we just wrapped up, but how, you know, how atheists kind of steal from God in order to make their arguments about morality and justice, how people like these secular folks are kind of teetering on the intellectual precipice of really becoming Christians and what that looks like, how scientists uh, are not you know, neutral, but people pretend like science is like those types of things. We get into why we should keep Christianity weird. Right. And I actually challenged him again on the pronoun hospitality stuff. And I really liked his answer this time around on that. The dangers of what is been called the evangelical industrial complex, you know, these mega churches, celebrity pastors, these scandals and all these different things. And then we wrap up with, you know, my question to him about why he's so optimistic about the future of Christianity in our world. I really enjoyed the conversation, guys. So I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Justin Brierly, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Well, thank you for having me back. Yeah, this is what, second time around with you, Kyle? No, no, no. This is the third time around. And here's third the thing. Time. I was on your show twice, and so I was all prepared to be like, hey, you're on mine for a third time. Let's get me on yours for a third time. But, <laughs> Justin, the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierly is now just the Unbelievable podcast. What in the world's going on? Well, what what is going on? I Yeah, it, it, I know a lot of people were shocked when they heard that I was leaving the Unbelievable show. I'd been on it for 17 and a half years. I founded it. Um, so it was a very bittersweet parting, but the, the time had just come Kyle for me to move on to some fresh projects. Um, I was, I needed, I wanted to sort of do more things in my own right and to be able to collaborate with people outside of 
the the structures of of Premier. Uh, so I, I, I'm I'm really glad to see the show continuing in new hands. Um, but I'm I'm trying some new things and and really enjoying it actually. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, let's talk about the new things. I don't care about the old girlfriend. Let's talk about the new one. What are the new things? Well, what, one of the new things is that the book that we're going to be talking about, I'm really excited right. about it. Um, it's coming out in September and we've got, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm doing around it, not just kind of, sh- you know, interviews like this. I, I'm actually currently developing a podcast documentary series based on the book that will release in September. So that's really exciting. If you if you enjoyed kind of the style of the kind of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast or the style of like the, the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, those kinds of documentary mm. podcast series, that's think of that kind of style of... Of, of of you know documentary footage and montage and so on but telling the story of the book really which is the fall of new atheism and the the growth of these new secular thinkers who are you know asking interesting questions so so that's really exciting but i've i've been doing some new podcast ventures as well i i'm co-hosting a new podcast called the reenchanting podcast which is filmed at lambeth palace library in london i've been doing some guest hosting for some other podcasts um and yeah and just lots of interesting opportunities coming up that that i'm i'm really pleased about Well, that is great. Anything that we can do to assist with those, you just let me know. But in addition to all that fun stuff here recently, I saw where you got to actually baptize your daughter, Grace. And like, so for me, Justin, as a father, like I I got a little choked up because I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and Mm. my plan is if they accept Christ or sorry, Calvinist, if Christ snatches (laughs) them up from the depths or whatever, because they're dead already, whatever I'm supposed to say, but like, we're, we're going to throw the biggest party because like in America, yeah. I don't know how it is in the UK, but this is what happens when a kid gets baptized in America. Oh, isn't, isn't that sweet? That's so cute. I bet her grandparents are really happy. But when a college football game happens or when a, you know, a football game for you guys over there, yeah, when your yeah. team scores a goal, it's just crazy apoplexy yeah, yeah. and people yeah, are losing yeah. their minds. We're throwing a party. We're going to have yeah, a big yeah. baptismal in the backyard. We're going to have games. We're going to go nuts. We're going to shoot off fireworks. But just as a father, being able to, mm. to dunk mm. your daughter, full immersion, guys, full yeah, immersion, yeah. but being able yeah. to dunk her and bring her up into newness of life. Tell me about that. Well, I, it, it, it was a huge privilege, obviously. Um, I mean, in our tradition, interestingly, um, full immersion isn't very common, actually, but Grace and an, another young guy who was we, was also being baptized the same day had said, "Would there be an option?" So we wanted to make that an option for them. And and I was baptized by full immersion at a similar age to Grace myself. So I I kind of I knew how special that 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 is. And um, so yeah, it was just wonderful to be able to do that um, and to do it in front of our whole church family. And yeah, so so we it was just it was just fabulous. And, and we we just had a wonderful day. We we had a party afterwards, you know. We had lots of family, some friends around. Mm-hmm. We made a real day of it. So yeah, I was I was I was super thrilled to be able to do that. Well, congratulations to you and to Mrs. Briarly. But now we need to we need to get down to business here because the the, the reason do. that you're on here today is because of the new book that you've alluded to, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Now, the last time you were on my show, episode three, something or other, I'll put it in the show notes, you give us a rundown of the book. You, you kind of, well, I guess you alluded to the book mm-hmm. on our last mm-hmm. podcast that you mm-hmm. were kind of working on it. Yeah. So now that it's out, because as of the rec- as of the release of this podcast, guys, you can go and buy this. It is in the show notes. Go and pick it up. Give us a very brief rundown of the book. Why'd you write it? You know, what are we supposed to get out of it? Uh, and, and maybe even as well, and I think this is alluded to in the artwork, uh, Matthew Arnold's The Sea of Faith 
features mm. kind of as a mm. scaffolding of sorts yeah. for this book. Yeah. And so I guess what is the sea of faith and you know why drive that home as the thesis? Just take us through all that. Well, this all really began actually when I was having a conversation with a guy called Douglas Murray, who's a kind of secular thinker here in the Great. UK. Yeah. Um, uh, he's a really interesting, he's kind of a conservative political commentator, but he's a well-known journalist. He's deputy editor of a magazine called The Spectator. And um, and he he came on for a discussion with N.T. Wright uh, on one of our big conversations. And he was remarking about the fact that even he describes himself as a Christian atheist because he understands the fact that... He, all of his values and ideals essentially have been shaped by the Christian story. And, and even though he doesn't believe in Christianity, he still kind of sees the way in which, you know, he owes so much and the West owes so much to the Christian story. Um, and, and he remarked that, that he'd been even seeing some of his, you know, thinking friends converting to Christianity and, uh, and said, I, I wonder if that, you know, the church, this might be a moment for the church to be speaking into a more receptive crowd. Um, and then he referenced the this poem by Matthew Arnold, a Victorian poet, who wrote this well-known poem called Dover Beach, which has this line in it about the melancholy, long-withdrawing roar of the sea of faith. And that's often been used as a metaphor and image for people to mm. talk about the way secularism has come in, Christianity has gone out, and it's only accelerated since Victorian times. Um, but then he, Douglas Murray, talking about this, said something which I found fascinating, obvious at one level, but I hadn't really thought of before, which is, well, the thing about the sea of faith is it could come back in again. You know, that's mm. the point of tides. And and that, just those words made me think, you know, maybe there's something in that. Because when I see even a secular thinker like Douglas Murray acknowledging just how profoundly his own worldview has been shaped by Christianity, and when I hear increasingly, as I was at the time, of other secular thinkers like Jordan Peterson and Tom Holland and a number of others kind of saying, look, are we sure we can live without something like the Christian story? Mm. And when I also have been seeing really interesting stories of conversion, adult converts to faith, I just started to wonder, well, maybe we are seeing the end of the kind of the atheist thing. Maybe we are seeing that movement starting to run out of steam and people realizing that they need something bigger. They need something like the Christian story. So, so the image, as you've referenced on the front cover, um, is is of a kind of tide coming in, mm. and and that that in a sense that that poem by Matthew Arnold kind of anchors the the story from the beginning. And and I wonder whether the tide is turning, whether it's we might be even within our generation able to see the Christian story come flooding back in again. So so that's really the the centerpiece of the book in that way. Well, Justin, for anyone that's spent any time on a coastline, you understand the imagery very well. I remember being in New Zealand and we were at a particular beach. I can't remember. And I mean, there were these, this group of little girls that were walking, you know, about like a quarter of a mile out where like an hour before, two hours before, like they would have been in water that could have been potentially dangerous for mm -hmm. them. And it was just like, mm -hmm. but depending upon what time of day you come to the coastline, you might think that, oh, this is the line now, or that's the line now. But you, I mean, you do mention Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, and a lot of others throughout the book, but th there's a quote in the introduction that kind of you know summarizes what you've said there, but it's this, notably in the past several years, the conversations have changed in tone and substance quite dramatically. We're talking about the unbelievable show that you were yeah. a former host of. The bombastic debates between militant atheists and Christian apologists have been far less frequent. 
to my dismay, but in their place have come increasing numbers of secular guests who are far more open to the cultural and social value of Christianity, even if they are not believers themselves. And so that that's absolutely happened. The thing that I, I, I find interesting is there's a couple of things that come to mind with that, Justin. There's the G.K. Chesterton quote that I think you have mm. in your book to where it's like, you know, if you're an atheist, it's not that you believe in nothing, it's that you believe in anything. Mm. But also the 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 new age or I guess it's new age, but these new atheists kind of, you have the four horsemen, which would be what mm. Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, and uh, I'm missing Hitchens. one. Hitchens. But also guys like, what is it? Levi Krauss or whatever, just yeah. a awful human being, such a rude, and I'll use nice language because I'm talking to a polite Englishman, but just an absolute <laughs> jerk. And that's entertaining for about seven seconds. But then you're just like, I, I just don't like this person. And so when you have a secular thinker like a Peterson or a Murray or Holland, it's almost more palatable because you think there's not just vitriol there, but there's probably something behind what they're saying, right? Mm, yeah, ex exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's right. I have I had noticed, as you say, that the conversations have begun to change a lot in the last several years of hosting The Unbelievable Show. It was very much birthed in the heyday of the new atheism when people like Hitchens and Dawkins and so on were riding high in the bestseller charts. You know, there were these atheist conferences and rallies going on. We even had the, the closest thing to an atheist advertising campaign when we had this atheist bus campaign with, with yep. buses rolling around London saying, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So in a way, you know, it's interesting you say that to your dismay, we, we, were, we weren't featuring those kinds of debates quite so often. And, and, in a way, it was a great way of getting into the issues, you know, in the early days of the show, yeah. because it was a very obvious kind of way of encountering something very obviously anti-theistic, anti-Christianity and and so on. But having said all that, I think I think the show tended to follow the way in which the culture was developing. And, and I just noticed increasingly that those very, you know, dogmatic atheist voices were just getting less airtime uh, as time went yeah. on. They were increasingly almost being seen as quasi-religious themselves because they were so dogmatic and shrill and fundamentalist almost in their own right. claims about the world and the universe. And and I think, in all honesty, the problem was that they, you know, especially people, as you mentioned, Lawrence Krauss, these kind of very sort of, you know, people who just dismissed the God question out of hand almost categorically and, and wouldn't give it a second thought. I think most people realized that's that that's not the way to engage one of the deepest questions of our time. And and the reason why I think people like Jordan Peterson started to get a hearing over and above the Dawkins and Harris's and Krauss's mm. and so on was because people couldn't live on the thin gruel of the atheist materialist story that that Krauss and others were preaching it was it was too insubstantial you know science and reasonal you know it'll get you so far but it won't buy you a positive ethic for how to live your life and and again this is one of the stories i sketch out in the book is the way that the the new atheists once they'd agreed god didn't exist and religion was bad for you they they basically couldn't agree on anything else they they it right. completely unraveled because some were going off in this woke social justice direction and that was where their movement had to go others were like no no we we're, we're just free thinkers we need to you know it's just about the science and the reason and and the the movement completely fractured into you know what we now see as kind of the culture wars, and and to that extent it was just such an obvious example of the way in which, uh, as you say, that G.K. Chesterton quote, people don't just believe in nothing; they suddenly they have to believe in something. You know, something mm -hmm. will fill the god the god void, 
And for some of them, it was sort of, you know, woke ideologies. For others, it was kind of this almost religious adherence to naturalism. And 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 in the end, I think the reason why people like Jordan Peterson became so popular and successful was because it was only people like him who were actually scratching, scratching the itch of, like, well, how do I make sense of life in the absence of God? Is there any way for me to live a meaningful mm. life? How do I get a sense of who I am? What is my identity in the absence of some... Uh, you know, a, a cosmic story that can give me some sense of identity, and and so that that's why I think that yeah, that that basically the new atheism kind of kind of led to its own demise in a funny way because you know having torn God down, they didn't have anything to put in God's place, and and so me, people started looking elsewhere. You know, let me get you to pump your brakes. All right, you're getting into yeah. all the good stuff from the book, okay. and don't worry, don't worry, we're going to get there. <laughs> but I do appreciate that you very slyly corrected. Uh, I said Levi Strauss. I think I connected Lawrence Krauss and <laughs> Levi Strauss, and it came out Levi Krauss. So I appreciate yeah, the the slight correction fine. there. That's fine. But one thing that's interesting when we talk about Dawkins. I remember when the the God delusion came out, it gave skeptics and atheists kind of their holy book. And we'll get more into, you know, how these people act in a religious way. But I remember destroying that book for somebody by asking a singular question, because this is a very smart guy. He's on my back porch. He's, he's more liberal. He's more secular than me, that kind of thing. But he lives in Oklahoma in America. So it's kind of sort of tangentially Christian just by dint of birth kind of a thing. But he was like, yeah, you know, man, uh, all, you know, as kind of, as I was reading through this book, like all morality is, you know, relative and, and basically like all truth is relative as well. And I kind of, I know we're not allowed to say his name anymore. I Ravi Zacharias him. I said, does your statement about truth being relative include itself or exclude mm. itself? And he just melted into a puddle <laughs> of stupid. And he was just like, oh man. And it was just kind of, you needed somebody to, to, to just there's already the chink in the armor. You just needed somebody yeah, yeah, to point yeah. at and be like, do you see that? Do you see how yeah, ridiculous yeah, that is? Yeah, now yeah. I want to get into chapter one of your book. Now mm. I want to be cautious in how I set this up mm. because the first chapter of your book is called the rise and fall of new atheism. Guys don't do this, but if you did, I'll give you a pass. If you bought this book and only read the first chapter, it's worth the cost of the entire book. The first chapter is like a, a miniature masterclass on the rise and fall of new atheism. And so again, don't do that. Don't be dumb. Don't read the first chapter and then move on with your life. But like you could, and you would still get some value out of it. But I want to circle back to the red London bus advertisement that you mm. talked about. Mm. Everyone kind of remembers that's in these circles when that came out and, and you quoted it perfectly there, but it's, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now the use of one word in that you know little two sentence advertisement gave you a hint as to the serious cracks in the new atheism foundation or chinks in the armor and that was the word probably mm -hmm. there's probably no god so talk to me a little bit about that advertisement kind of what it did for people in the uk because i think it had the exact opposite effect of what they I, were hoping I, I i think it did exactly like that i i think i think if if the atheist movement were, were trying to kind of get people to forget about god well the last way to do that is to basically create a bus campaign saying there's probably no god because all you're going to do is kind of remind people that there's this god question hanging around um and maybe i haven't really thought about that oh maybe maybe is there probably no god well maybe there is a god and and you know the way i put it in the book is it you know People didn't need any encouragement in the UK to kind of think less about God. You know, it's a, it's a bit like asking 
a teenager to consider having a lie-in on a Saturday morning. You know, it kind of goes without saying that 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 it's a given. But um, so I think actually it really kind of introduced the God question uh, by by them running this advertising campaign. In fact, I know one or two Christians who put money into the campaign because they thought it was such a great way of actually raising questions for people. Mm. And, and 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 it's so interesting looking back. You know, um, Philip Pullman, who's a well-known atheist author, when I interviewed him. Uh, at one point, he talked about that atheist bus campaign and said that he thought he thought it was the most ridiculous, banal, stupid thing that, that his own yeah. group, the atheists, could have done because he saw the way that it actually, you know, played into the debate. And he also thought it was just a really dumb thing to say. He, he, yeah. he thought that's that's not the way you go about treating the biggest question people can ask themselves about God. So, so I I I, w- I was intrigued. You know, I, I thought that was just such an interesting moment in our culture. I think the equivalent moment, in a way, in the US was was I don't know if you remember the Reason Rally in I think course, it was twenty twelve yeah. in Washington DC. You know, tens of thousands of atheists, agnostics, and skeptics turning out for what was described as you know the Woodstock for atheists with all these atheist speakers and musicians. Which is there a so lamer on. sounding you know, thing than the Woodstock for atheists? Like you nerds, get out of here. Keep going. But yeah, but again, it was it was a kind of high watermark almost though, where where, you know, people were coming out and rallying for reason and all the rest of it. But but again, for me, it 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 kind of said something about the movement that there was this almost quasi-religious element to it, you know, that people had to get together and band together and sort of be told from the front, you know, this is what we believe. So, you know, they were literally chanting stuff like science rules, you know, religion rules. And and it was just kind of, for me, a, a, a kind of just such an interesting moment to, to say this right. is this is where, where atheists feel they need to go at this point. And it, it's got such a religious flavor that you wonder what the next step is going to be for them. Well, Justin, it was, it was vapid is what it was. And it's like when people are trying to convince themselves of something, they do that stupid thing where they look in the mirror and go, you can do it. You can accomplish it. You can blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, have you tried doing it yet? Cause here you are doing these ohms to the mirror, but you're not actually doing anything. So, so again, guys, that first chapter really gives you the rise and fall of new atheism, you know, a, a, a highlight on the four horsemen. I, I can't do it justice with, with my questioning there. You just have to go and buy it. But there's something interesting about what you said about like these rallies and we're going to stand up and we're going to chant. We're going to say things that don't make sense. But if we say them loud enough and often enough, they're going to start to make sense. But there's an underlying cowardice to, or there was at least an underlying cowardice to this new atheism movement. And I think it's most indicative of how we saw Richard Dawkins refusing to debate or avoiding debate with a guy like William Lane Craig and how that's indicative of the cowardice of people that think the way uh, that think that way, that they're just refusing serious debate and in, in the intellectual er- merits of the Christian worldview because, well, this guy's bigoted. Well, that that's cute and it's kind of kitschy to just point at the other side and say, that dude's a racist. I'm not going to platform him. When in actuality, it's that you're scared that he's smarter than you and he's going to say something that you can't just wave your hand over. So talk to me a little bit about that because I feel like I'm a bloodhound for cowardice and I can just smell it on people. It's just like you reek of it. And that's, you know, when I get into debates, I have to be very careful because when I smell that, it's like, okay, I don't have to hit them now. I'm just going to drag them into deep water and drown them later. But talk to me a little bit about that. 
Well, well, I think you, you've put your finger on something that was at the centre of why the new atheism ultimately didn't stick around, why it didn't end up convincing people. And I think because people recognised that it couldn't actually provide the intellectual heft that its, that its architects claimed it could. So, you know, it was being championed by scientists and, you know, public thinkers and so on. But when those public thinkers refused to debate the best Christian minds out there, then that, of course, will give people pause for thought and wonder, well, well what are they hiding? What, what you know, what, yeah. why can't? Richard Dawkins step up and have a debate because he was happy to to kind of critique and you know knock over right. plenty of straw men he was happy to you know debate you know the 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 guy running the hell house in Colorado on his TV show and that kind of thing but right. he consistently refused uh, many engagements and opportunities to to debate with William Lane Craig um, I was involved in one of these particular moments so Back in 2011, I was helping to host a tour that William Lane Craig came over to do a number of debates mm. and lectures, basically responding to the God delusion. And there were some atheists who were willing to come out and debate him, and, and I had a lot of respect for them. But um, I remember when you know we were setting this up, we, we wanted to get Richard Dawkins. He was the person we really needed. Um, so we went to his hometown. We went to Oxford. We booked a theatre. Um, we we said we're giving you we're giving you ample time to respond to this. And he just came up with a litany of excuses for why he wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, f firstly it was I only I only debate bishops and um, you know cardinals and you know when in fact he's debated plenty of other people. Um, uh, and then it was oh it would look better on his CV than mine. And and, and I don't yeah. debate profession. You know creationist well William Lane Craig isn't a creationist uh, oh I don't you know I don't debate people who are just professional debaters well he's not a professional debater he's a philosopher he's got plenty of peer-reviewed you know uh, so all of these were really bad excuses basically and we went to the extent actually we were a bit naughty um we were a bit cheeky because we we ended up running our own bus campaign around Oxford and it was buses yeah. bearing the slogan there's probably no Dawkins but find out <laughs> at the Sheldonian <laughs> theatre uh, on the date so so and we we weren't expecting him to turn up but we did leave this empty chair this symbolic empty chair yeah. um to say look if if your pre premier spokesperson is willing to come and fill this chair then let's take atheism seriously but otherwise you know why should we give it give it the time of day if if he's not willing to come out and debate so yeah for me i think that was that was such an interesting moment and i've got a friend peter byram who today is a christian partly because um, Richard Dawkins didn't turn up to debate William Lane Craig. And mm. he was very influenced by Dawkins as a young man, as a student. He became an atheist. Um, but it was because he saw that the new atheists weren't giving satisfactory answers as he started to discover good Christian apologetics. He, he realized that the strength of these arguments is nothing like what I thought it was. And when he saw people like Dawkins ducking, actually debating the, yeah. the real tough tough nuts he, he he eventually came to faith himself and and it was partly because you know he was he was really disappointed by the new atheists and um uh, and their empty kind of intellectual promises you know yeah very empty and i thought hitchens was the worst at this because he was able to hide behind that accent i think so he was very uh he was very sarcastic and he had a great accent, but if he had no uh, comedic timing and if he spoke like he was from Mississippi here in America, everyone would have been like, this guy's a moron. Like he's not saying anything. It's like a, a general manager for a professional sports team when they're asked direct questions or like a, a, you know, a representative for the media, for a political figure, they're saying words 
but they're not, they're not saying anything like words yeah. are coming out of their face hole, but it's not leading to any type of an answer. And so that's what it kind of felt like to me. It was just very, very unsatisfying on an intellectual level. I mean, Christopher Hitchens, you know, he was a brilliant rhetorician. He was great at yeah. doing polemics. Uh, and that's really what most of his books are. But he didn't have good arguments. And, and no. the fact is that that you only have to really actually start to pull them apart, the logic of them, to see that, you know, even the title of his book, um, God is not great, why religion poisons everything. It, it's so ridiculously overstated. <laughs> I mean, it hardly yeah. needs saying that, of course, religion doesn't poison everything. And, it, you know, um, and and so... I mean, I've got to say though, I've got a soft spot for Hitchens. He he died, you know, quite early on um, in 2011. And it, of all the new atheists, actually, Hitchens was, I think, the most likable because he kind of he kind of knew he was doing it for effect. He he knew that he was kind of you know uh, going out there and saying overblown things. And and he but he actually got on of all of them. I'd say he, he actually developed the most sincere relationships with the Christians that he was opposite. So I don't know if you saw the yeah, Francis the Collins and yeah, yeah people like Francis Collins. He 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 became friends with. Um, he, there's a great documentary of his kind of time spent with Doug Wilson and when they were kind of going back and forth and they developed yeah. quite a good friendship. Uh, and there are, I've heard numerous other stories. And I think he was kind of one of those people who, you know, my hope is that that he, he maybe even you know wavered a little bit in his atheism he he was one of the people as well who really disliked when Dawkins and others were suggesting that the atheist movement should rename itself to Brights because he said that's so patronizing uh, and he he recognized at least that there were plenty of bright religious people you know he wasn't going to go so far as to say no you know everybody who's religious is a complete moron so so I, I do have a kind of, I, I actually like Christopher Hitchens of all of them. I think he was the most human at one level, but he, he still had bad arguments. That's, that's fair to say. So he was your favorite of the four horsemen. Who's your least favorite? <laughs> Good question. Um, maybe, maybe Sam Harris, just cause he never returned my calls. Um, I, I tried to get him on my show a number of times and well, I think you, I did, I didn't have the cash that would, would, that it would take to get Sam Harris out of bed in the morning. Um, to well, be fair to Dawkins, he came on the show a couple of times and we had some good, yeah. good interactions. Dan, then also came on the show. Um, and, and so they were at least willing at, at some point, you know, to, to kind of interact with some Christians, which, which was a good thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, Harris, I never, I never got hold of. Well, Harris would be my least favorite as well, but for a different reason, cause I never okay. contacted him, but I remember it was at some point inside the the book where you mentioned Sam Harris and I literally wrote this guy is a fool in in the margins because when I hear him speak he's clearly smart but he's so foolish and when you read through scripture and you hear about people that are um there are simple people that just can't understand because of their simple mindedness but then you also have people that are foolish where they can reason they can reckon but they just come to the wrong conclusions but they're so vociferous and you know dogmatic and crazy about those those conclusions that they draw where they seem smart to high-minded other liberal secular people but they're actually again not saying anything now i i don't want to ask your uh, question on this i just want to read this quote because again i want to let the, the the book kind of speak for itself but it's kind of to the whole idea of new atheism or just I guess atheism in general being in and of itself a religion. So here's a quote from the book that I loved. 
There were the high priests, the four horsemen, and the sacred texts they had written. Science was their object of worship and naturalism, the belief that all that exists can be explained by matter and motion and the blind forces of nature, was their creed. They gathered regularly to celebrate their beliefs, to praise the wonder of science, and to hear their leaders preach against those who believed another gospel. Atheists who questioned this strict materialist orthodoxy or even lost their faith altogether were heretics and rounded on with unswerving zeal. There's no way that in this interview, Justin, you could say it better than you said it right there in that little paragraph. So I'm not even going to let you try. We're going to move right on to something that I think part of part of your book, Justin, is it almost didn't feel like you wrote it. And I know you did because you were a little bit harsher than what I've been used to over these last several years of you being kind of the, you know, the, the nice, polite guy in the middle of these debates <laughs> and not trying to be too one sided or the other. But it was so delicious in the first chapter of your book when you described the cannibalism of new atheism because of political wokeness, right? And so just so we have our terms, right? So wokeness is, you know, a higher consciousness of perceived injustice. Like it's that type of idea, but it was that, that thing that everybody thought would just be a, a good marriage with new atheism that mm. kind of led to the beginning and the continuation of its downfall. So talk to us a little bit yeah. about that. Well, in a funny way, I think the atheist movement, the new atheist movement experienced a kind of a me too moment earlier than yeah. Hollywood did basically. So if you again, go back to around 2011, I think it was, there's this moment, which I think kind of was the beginning of the unraveling of new atheism. And it's called, it was called elevator gate, you know, a, any con controversial moment has gate tacked onto it these days, yeah. isn't it? And this this was this took place at a, an atheist conference in Dublin, uh, and one of the speakers was a young atheist vlogger called Rebecca Watson, who went under the pseudonym Skeptic, and she had just delivered a talk at this conference about the problem of misogyny in the atheist movement and the fact that it was dominated by white white patriarchal men. And the, the kind of issues she had seen, you know, among delegates and generally um, the way that women were treated in the movement and so on. So she'd done this. Richard Dawkins was one of the, the other speakers and, you know, had been on a panel. They then, you know, she and the other speakers were kind of up till the early hours of the morning, sort of drinking at the bar. She went back to her hotel room. As she got in the elevator, one of the other guests at the conference got in and basically propositioned her, said, would you like to come to my room for coffee? We all know what that's code for. Anyway, yep. she said, no thanks and kind of left it there and, and was off anyway she then sort of talked about this on her her youtube channel afterwards and said you know this is the problem i'd literally just done a you know done a talk on this and then here i am uh, a woman by myself in a foreign country getting propositioned in an elevator you know this this is this is a problem guys now that might have been the end of it except that Richard Dawkins then weighed in. Uh, he posted a very kind of sarcastic and inflammatory yeah. kind of piece about this on on a, an atheist blog called Dear Muslima, in which he very sarcastically referenced the idea. Oh, uh, from a kind of it, it was in the voice of a Muslim woman saying, "Oh, forget about all the problems I'm having with having my hands chopped off by religious uh, extremists. Think of our poor American sisters being propositioned for coffee in elevators." It was this kind of very heavily sardonic, sarcastic sort of thing anyway he was basically critiquing rebecca watson saying get over it you know uh, th there's not a problem um and this just poured gasoline on this issue <laughs> suddenly everyone was talking about elevator gate and you had the rebecca watson side and all the folks who were coming behind her and saying it, isn't it terrible we've got you know such a problem with m misogyny and patriarchy in the atheist movement others 
coming in on Richard Dawkins' side saying, this is ridiculous, we just need to have common sense about this and everything else. And this then just spiraled into more and more issues. Okay, so, you know, to, to and the one that eventually, of course, the big juggernaut that came in was transgender. Um, and, yep. and so a few years later, you're getting Richard Dawkins, of all people, being stripped of his award by the American Humanist Association, um, having been given this award several years earlier, they took it away from him because of comments he'd made about transgender on on Twitter. Yeah. So basically, as a biologist, he was questioning the biological realities of, of transgender and so on. Um, and I was seeing this happening in all kinds of ways to the extent that, you know, um, certain atheist leaders could no longer share a stage together at some of these atheist conferences. Atheist conferences were literally getting cancelled because the the people wouldn't be willing to appear on a stage because you're in that movement and I'm in this movement and we can't, you know, um, talk to each other anymore. Um, so, so the whole thing, yeah, just started to kind of unravel in that way. There was a movement, you know, on the kind of more social justice oriented side there were those who wanted to become atheism plus was what they were calling it, you know? So it was mm. not just a commitment to atheism, but a commitment to, you know, feminism, LGBT rights, anti-racism and so on. And then you had those who just thought that was the worst idea imaginable because all we need is science and reason. We don't need all this politically correct stuff. And the, when, once they got into those debates, you know, the venom they had for each other far outweighed anything they had for their Christian counterparts. So this, this all really spelled the end of the line for this, this new atheist movement, because it, it did just kind of, as much as it wasn't answering the questions in the culture, as I said earlier, it was really also unraveling internally uh, a lot of the time. It couldn't have happened to a better group of people. I just got to be honest. I just love watching them chase their tails and fight each other. It's just absolutely delicious. Now, here we are a half hour in, and I'm still on chapter one. I got one question left about chapter one. We got six more chapters we got to cover. But I want to read this quote here because I think it encapsulated something that isn't talked about enough. So here we go. By the time new atheism swung into view in the 2000s, there were precious few churches prepared to equip their members for the onslaught of skepticism it brought. They might have been able to offer uplifting worship songs and an inspiring sermon series on living your best life now, but few were in the position to offer a philosophical defense of God's existence or to defend the historicity of the Bible. There were notable exceptions, of course, but by and large, the Western church was caught on the back foot. Yes, amen, double, triple stamp. I absolutely agree with that. Again, Undaunted Life is here to equip men to push back darkness. The, all those words are meaningful. We're equipping who? Men to do what? Push back darkness. What is dark? Well, churches aren't even describing that because they're putting together these TED Talk sermon series, sprinkling a little bit of scripture over the top of it so they can keep their tax-exempt status, and they're calling it church. And it's like, the smoke machines are great. The light show's fantastic. 74 people on stage where only five microphones are turned on and everybody's <laughs> dancing, having a good time. Okay, whatever, whatever you're into. But when you have somebody ask a simple question, like how can we, you know, a Joe Rogan saying something like, well, we can't even trust the Bible because the Council of Nicaea basically made up the canon. And, you know, it's been translated so many times and we don't have the original. So we can't trust the Bible anyway. And if you're a Christian and you're just like, I guess that sounds good. It's like- <laughs> Okay. Part of it is your fault because your own stupidity is your fault and your responsibility to overcome it. But you're also pointing out a great thing here, Justin, which is churches weren't focused on discipleship. They were focused on growth. They were focused on planning another campus or another, you know, 
it's basically like McDonald's. They're just planting franchises all over the place. And so you have these growth minded pastors that are more like CEOs. They don't even have elder boards. They have a board of directors and they're just trying to plant as many of these, you know, McDonald's as possible. And so you have this inch deep and, you know, a mile wide, Mm. uh, you know, theology in these people. And you're absolutely right. They were caught on the back foot. Mm. So, so talk Mm. to me a little bit more about that. Well, I, I think you've said a lot of it there. And and I think the problem was that I think the church in a way had bought into the kind of experiential postmodern kind of trend that was going on in culture generally anyway, which was kind of moving away from a more kind of intellectual engagement with issues. But the problem was that, that, that you know, it, it was also drawing away as it did that from the intellectual side of its tradition, because it was the church that founded the universities. You know, you go to Oxford yep. University, it's got a Christian motto. You know, right. people forget that, 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 that it was Christians who started the scientific revolution. It, it was Christians who were the, the philosophers and the sages and the, the, the heavyweight intellects. And, and yet we arrived at a position in the 21st century where, you know, people associated, yes, yeah, sadly, Christianity with a kind of Joel Osteen level of kind of engagement. Oh. Now, it's not that there aren't good theologians and apologists and people, and obviously you had some of those people like Lewis and Chesterton and so on in the 20th century who who did help to kind of bring back something of that intellectual tradition. But yeah, I, unfortunately, I think the church had gone down a road of kind of experiential fulfillment, um, and it had, it had lost that sort of catechism. Um, catechizing sort of know what you believe and why you believe yeah. it kind of imperative that was there from the beginning of the early church and 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 the good thing is that the new atheism did at least give them a kick up the bottom to say hang on a minute <laughs> something's gone wrong here it was by being presented with a, a really hard you know questioning sort of approach from the new atheists that 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 led to a lot of christians suddenly re-engaging with that theological apologetic historical tradition and why i think you then saw you know happily the proliferation of a number of new apologetics ministries I mean, as i said my own show to some extent was responding to the new atheism and so for to, to that degree it, it was a godsend that actually forced us to pick up our theology books again and put down the tambourines and guitars for a little while yeah, the uh, the new atheists kind of picked the scab that most Christians didn't even know was there. They didn't even know they got wounded, and yet mm. here they are getting picked at, and they're like, wait a minute. And so I think it's good that we're on our front foot as opposed to our back foot now. So here we go. We've made it. Chapter two. So the new conversation on God. I only have one question about chapter two. It's not because there's not good stuff in there. It's because I knew this would happen. We'd get halfway through our time, and I would still be in chapter one. So let me read this quote to you. A generation of young men searching for significance and unsure of their identity have latched onto him, being Jordan Peterson, as a surrogate father, father figure to help them find their way in life. Jaded by the unfulfilled promises of Dawkins, Hitchens, and the new atheist intellectuals, they believe that perhaps it is Peterson who has the words of life. And this is a little bit later on the same page. No wonder so many Christian leaders have taken notice of Peterson and his overtures towards Christian faith. Young males are precisely the demographic most absent in churches. So here's the thing. I know a lot of pastors individually that love Jordan Peterson mm. and they're, they're cautious of his theology. They're, mm. they're, they're being intellectually consistent that this man is still secular, that he's not put his faith in Christ, however you want to couch it. But he is speaking to young males in a way that they have either not tried to or have tried to and been super unsuccessful. And again, Jordan Peterson did a, a, a video that I did a full breakdown of, you know, it was a message to the American church, right? Like 
what do you, how are y'all getting this so wrong? But he was explaining to these pastors, your churches might as well have blinking neon signs saying, men, we don't have you in mind. Men, we don't care about you. Men, we don't need you. And then they're shocked when the men don't show up to volunteer, when the men aren't engaged, when they're not discipling their children or catechizing their children or taking advantage of discipleship opportunities. So talk to me a little bit more about people specifically like Jordan Peterson, that they didn't just recognize it, but they put their finger on the pulse of that and they're speaking into it. Yeah. And and I think I think this does chime so well with what you've been trying to do, obviously, on, on your show, Kyle, which is that. I think Jordan Peterson connected with young men because he kind of recognized that young men are unique. Men generally are, are different to women. And he wasn't afraid of saying that. Um, you know, he was coming at it, obviously, from a kind of psychological perspective. It wasn't so much, you know, a spiritual sort of side of things. But but even just at a purely psychological level, he was saying stuff that was just made sense that suddenly, you know, a lot of young men realized, yeah, I, I am different. There are things that fire me. There's a kind of a sense of, you know, purpose and meaning that, that it, you know, w- speaks to me in, in ways that it won't speak to other people. And and to, to that extent, I think that's why they were flocking to to him because he was kind of just pointing out kind of fairly obvious things and giving them a kind of a a reason for getting up in the morning and and giving them that sense of purpose and and who 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 they were kind of made to be. Um, and I I found that sort of refreshing because I I thought you know yeah maybe maybe in a lot of the churches that that we haven't been able to reach men because we we've sort of. For whatever reasons, you know, probably with the best of intentions, we've we've turned churches into places where men, as you say, don't feel like it speaks to me that that I have to be a different kind of person when I walk into church than I am, you know, when I'm mm. living my everyday life. And and to that extent, I think um, there are a lot of lessons that you know uh, that that people preachers could take from from Jordan Peterson. But I think perhaps most significantly was that he was he was willing to go deep. You know, um, he he didn't do these kind of puff peace type you know sermons that so often are the kind of stuff that you get he he, he was like you know doing like two hour lectures on the book of exodus um yeah. it was like he 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 took seriously the fact that we are intellectual people that that um we we need to make sense of life and that they you know that we have to dig deep sometimes to understand who we are and why we're here and that kind of thing now i think he was asking the right questions i don't think he was coming up with all the right answers because at the right. end of the day as you say he wasn't he, he he i think he's kind of sometimes seems to be teetering on the edge of christianity but yeah. it's a kind of his own very sort of unique jungian sort of version of mm. of, of the way he approaches those questions right but I, I was kind of encouraged that that he was obviously that there were enough young men out there who were willing to kind of walk through the door that he was opening for them in terms of taking right. christianity seriously again well and we'll get way more into that in chapter four in recovering the bible but uh, you, you talk about something that has really been a, a key for us, which is most churches make men feel like they have to check their nuts at the door. Whereas Jordan Peterson is like, not nah, hey, let's gird our loins here. Let's get ready for battle. Like, let's like, and when he says things like, you don't, you need to be a monster. Like when he explains meekness, he's like, no, no, no. Mm. Meek is a, that's a bit bridled horse. It's a war horse. Like you don't mm. take away the war horse's ability to go to war, like just so you can ride it. You just make sure that it's listening to you and to your guidance. And if you're meeked to Christ, mm. imagine how much better you could be than a guy that's just passively sitting on his couch, playing video games and watching porn and going to church every now and then and calling it good and checking the box. And mm. 
that's more of a cultural Christianity problem mm-hmm. that I, I would say that mm-hmm. we have here in America because we're not exactly post-Christian, like mm-hmm. you know maybe mm-hmm. the UK or Canada mm-hmm. by now. But that's another reason, like men are attracted to strength in other men. That's why 18-year-olds will fight and die for a general that they believe in. You don't have to go back too far in history to see those types of things happening. Uh, you know, the the modern global war on terrorism, there's some jaded ideas there. But, I mean, just go back to World War II and the people that would just get fired up by their general. Like, it's, it's an incredible thing to see. So to move on to chapter three, this chapter is called Shaped by the Christian Story. And again, guys, we're just barely scratching the surface <laughs> on all this. It's not a long book, but it's super, super deep. But um, there's a concept in there, and I don't know if you named Frank Turek necessarily, but it's how atheists will steal from God in order to give you their views on morality and justice. And so I'm going to read a short quote from chapter three, chapter three here. For the sake of brevity, I will sketch out just two key moral beliefs in our Western culture, the development of which were profoundly influenced by Christianity. First, our belief in human dignity and equality. And second, the belief in our duty to protect the weakest in society. Now, in the book, you obviously go into a lot of detail on those two things. But why specifically did you pick the belief in human dignity and equality and then also the belief in our duty to protect the weakest in society as a as a club, you know, by which to, you know, bash these atheists over the head with. <laughs> well, I think I chose them because they are two kind of qualities that no secular atheist person would ever probably in our culture disagree with. Well, of course, we're supposed to treat every human with dignity. That's why we call ourselves humanists, right? Of course, we believe <laughs> yeah. in equality. That's why, you know, we we believe in equal rights. Um, and of course, we believe in compassion and kindness and, you know, our duty to, to you know, be kind to the, the vulnerable. But the problem is, uh, you know, and as Frank Turek and others have pointed out, you can't get those values on a purely atheistic worldview. There, yeah. there's, there's nothing in the universe, there's nothing in our DNA, there's nothing that science can tell you, there's nothing that pure reason can tell you that tells you that you should treat every other human being the way that you would expect to be treated yourself. That comes from a different place. That's a theological belief. That's something about, you know, something else. And one of the key people I kind of mentioned in this chapter who's been pointing this out to the secularists, to the humanists, is himself a secular person. He's a historian called Tom Holland. Um, he's been on my show several times doing some fantastic debates, both with kind of people who are quite sympathetic to him, like N.T. Wright, but also he, he had this dramatic clash with uh, an atheist philosopher called Lacey Grayling on one of my big conversations. But but Tom Holland is one of those modern people who grew up just assuming that, yeah, of course, any cultured civilization believes in things like human rights, equality, dignity, and so on. But discovered when he actually started researching the ancient world, because he became a best-selling popular historian, that the world of the Greeks and Romans was radically different to his world and that the right. things they took for granted were completely different to the things he took for granted. In their right. world, um, uh, you know, the use of slaves for, for any kind of sexual you know, use that the master wanted was completely a given. There was no question about that. Uh, the, the idea of consent did not exist in that culture. Um, and uh, likewise, um, human life, it was just far, far cheaper. You could you could kill your slaves if you, you know, were dissatisfied with their work. You, um, you could leave children out for wild animals if you didn't want them. That was just part of the assumed culture. Um, there was no sense that we had a duty to protect the the vulnerable. If widows and orphans existed, 
too bad for them, you know, unless they could find, you know, work as prostitutes or be sold into slavery themselves or something. Society had no debt to them. So all of these assumptions that he'd held as just being normal, he realized were not normal. In fact, the vast majority of the ancient world would have regarded these values he held as completely weird. And he realized right. the reason they were weird is because they came from Christianity. And he he basically came to the conclusion that even though I'm not a Christian, in almost every way, I am a Christian uh, because everything I believe about the way the world should be is basically came from the Christian revolution 2000 years ago. Now, again, he's one of these interesting characters who, uh, and I sketch this out in the chapter, who's kind of seems to be teetering on the edge of Christianity because mm. he wants it to be true. He knows he doesn't want to live in a world where atheism is true because he can't make sense of this real deep belief he has in human value and equality mm. and dignity. And he knows it came from Christianity. The question is, can he get to the point where he really believes the Christian story is true? And my argument simply is, the reason Christianity worked so well is because it is true, okay? Right. That, that actually, that's, it, it's not, sometimes the psychologists, the, the Petersons, they kind of like to flip it around and they say, you know, it works, therefore we can kind of think of it as true. And I would say, no, um, it it, it's true and that's why it works. Okay. It, you don't have to kind of, you know, split those two things apart. Things yep. generally work because they're true, you know? And so, so, so that's, that's my simple plea to, to, to many of these secular intellectuals is think, you know, just follow the evidence where it leads. Basically, uh, if, if it works brilliantly, there's a reason for that. When you're teeing up a, a quote from chapter four of your book, which is Rediscovering the Bible. Now, this is the longest quote I'm going to read for the day, maybe the last one. So if you're tired of hearing me read out loud, good, good. This is, we've made it to this point. Stick with me. So here we go. Peterson goes as far as to say that the Bible itself functions as the definitive text out of which all other texts and thoughts in the Western world flow. As he puts it, it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. That means a modern Westerner can no more dismiss the Bible than someone standing on the 25th floor of a high-rise apartment can dismiss the foundation of their building on the basis that it seems far away. Peterson, Haidt, and Murray, that's Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Haidt, and Douglas Murray, all approach the Bible as secular intellectuals with a growing admiration for its foundational contribution to our shared culture and human experience. That alone might be enough to send many back to the Bible to explore it as a psychologically profound and symbolically rich example of wisdom literature. Yet, once again, in my opinion, the thinkers are still only halfway there. So you've talked about that at length at this point, Justin. Mm. Same thing with Tom Holland. Same thing with a lot of people that you talk about. So this kind of gets into the weeds theologically a little bit, but it seems weird that they would acknowledge the truth of Christianity and the truth of its practical application, but not the truth that 2,000 years ago, a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter in his 30s lived, did ministry for three years, died at the behest of the Jewish Sanhedrin at the hands of the Romans on a cross, and three days later rose again, and then a bunch of people died attesting to not what they read in a book, but for what they saw. Right. Mm, and so mm. for these, for these men, what, what is it? Cause again, I'm not picking on Calvinists, but they would say, well, maybe they're just not elect. So let's just throw our hands up and not give a crap. <laughs> but it's like, what is it for these men? Like, what's it going to take for them to stop as you would call it teetering? Well, 
I mean, the interesting thing is here, you know, maybe putting putting a Calvinist hat on, there, there might be a purpose that God has in these being people outside the church who are speaking into to, to, a, to a crowd that the church often struggles to reach. So Almost, I think it, would some, it be like a prophet, like an Old, old yeah, Testament yeah, prophet? Yeah, exactly. It, prof, prophets from outside the church is, is a good way of okay. putting it. And I think, I think there's, to some extent, you know, the fact that, I think Jordan Peterson probably might not have drawn such an audience. Tom Holland might not get such an audience. Douglas Murray might not. If they weren't kind of, if they were already seen as Christians, if they were seen as, you know, oh, these these guys are just, you know, preaching from that songbook. So I think yeah. in, in an odd way, there's almost a value actually in in an unexpected voice saying to people, you should take Christianity seriously, okay? Because mm. and I now, of course, I would love them to become Christians because I think that's the best choice anyone can ever make for themselves. Um, but I still think there's actually a value in in having their voice outside the church in, in an ironic way. Now, what is it that will take them over the line? I think that is down to each individual person. There's going to be all kinds of, in my experience, there are all kinds of not just intellectual but emotional and spiritual issues that are often stopping people from from kind of making that journey i did i did have the opportunity to to actually ask a bit cheekily douglas murray that this question in one of the shows i did with mm -hmm. him and at, at the basis of it as i say he he recognizes that to to a degree all of his values and his you know and so on stem from christianity he kind of had a kind of christian faith up to his early 20s and it kind of then got pulled the rug got pulled on from under him by a kind of some intellectual arguments. He kind of got started reading some of the um, 19th century biblical critics and the Germans and so on who were doing that thing of basically undermining the historicity of the Bible, basically. And I think Douglas Murray basically needs to read some more recent scholarship, which I think has absolutely demolished that 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 strain of theology. Um, because I think there there are so many good um, scholars now who are, who are showing the ways in which we can trust the Bible. And I tried to just give a little flavor of that in the book. But when I asked him, like, what would it take for you to believe Douglas? He said to me, mm. I think I'd need to hear a voice, he said. And and so basically he's looking for kind of some kind of supernatural sign of, mm. you know, divine intervention. And and I finished the chapter because he'd recognized, you know, he'd talked, you know, at length about the way he saw the Bible as fundamental to Western culture and everything else. And I And I said, well, look, could God have spoken in any clearer voice than a book which has spoken to generations of people over thousands of years in all cultures and brings together voices from disparate cultures, places and times in this one unified story that has this extraordinary impact upon the whole of the world? That might be the voice of God that you're looking for, you know, because yeah. you could you could imagine that just hearing a voice in your head well, that might just be my imagination. That might just be what I ate for, you know, dinner last night. Um, but if if you if you say you found this book that seems to have has had this effect on the world that no other book, no other piece of literature has ever had, well, maybe that's the voice of God that you're looking for. So I, I just think sometimes there needs to be just a gear shift, an intellectual gear shift, where 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 people realise, look, the reason that I find this so compelling is that. There's something real behind it. There's something true behind it. It's a frustrating thing because you can't make someone do that. But yeah. but I, I hope that in writing the book, it will help others who might find themselves in a similar situation realize there's every reason to to now trust this thing and and not to kind of hold it at arm's length any longer. And they're they're not alone in thinking that. And you know, I've given Calvinists the one two so far. Uh, so let me throw you a bone here. The the story that just it flummoxes me. There's your you know ten dollar word of the day. Mm -hmm is the ascension 
when the ascension of Jesus is described in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's also described that, and people still didn't believe. Mm. At that point, what else do you need to see? So again, I know you can't say his name publicly because he's like, whatever that, you know, the bad guy in Harry Potter is, you can't say his name out loud. But <laughs> Robbie Zacharias would talk about people that are just like, give me a sign. He's like, these are the people that will get a million signs and then demand one million and one. They need another sign, another sign. So that that's a good argument for something like, you know, election and, you know, having no basically free will or you couldn't possibly stand to deny the gospel because it's like if people saw Jesus ascend after he was resurrected and they still didn't believe, I just can't believe people are that stupid. I just, I just can't believe that people could look at that and say nothing. Well, I, I think, as I say, there's going to be all kinds of issues that are going on in the background. And another story I tell in the book is is a, a very memorable moment in a show I was hosting between a Christian astrophysicist, Hugh Ross, and a well-known atheist scientist called Peter Atkins. And Peter Atkins is like the most dyed-in-the-wool atheist that you could meet. I mean, he, almost yeah. to the extent that whenever I featured him on the show, many atheists have written in and said, please don't put that guy on again because he doesn't speak for me. But he's kind yeah. of, he just super dismissive of any kind of argument Every, anything that comes his way oh it's all just lazy thinking poppycock you know um so anyway we got to the end of this discussion on whether there's any evidence for god as the origin of the laws of the universe and 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 he had just you know batted the, all of the reasoning that hugh ross had given away without really offering any counter argument yeah, just saying right. oh you know it's just lazy thinking as well so i i eventually kind of got frustrated and i said look peter is there any kind of evidence that could convince you that God exists? Yeah. I, and I gave him a couple of examples. So, you know, what what if Jesus appeared to you in the room right now and said, time to come home, Peter? And he said to me, well, I, I could be having some kind of brain malfunction. And, and I said, okay, well, what about if, if the stars lined up in the sky and said, it's me, God, Peter, believe in me, and said, <laughs> Right. Well, it'd be more likely that it was advanced alien technology. And and yeah. I said, well, at this point, it seems like there's no evidence that could convince you. Right. I mean, I said, I mean, can you think of anything? And he said, no, I really can't think of anything. And the point is, at this point, he's so wedded to his atheist materialism, he will filter everything through that worldview. So there's no possibility of, you, you could give him arguments until you're blue in the face. It's not going to move him one iota. So what, what does Peter Atkins need? He needs a change of heart. He needs something else. It's not just more evidence. Right. It's not just more arguments. So I think you're right. I think, I think there's a point at which there is something about the human heart and it's only a divine move of God that, that will do something in that person's life. Uh, so, so that is, that is the point you get to. And, and I'm not here to kind of judge exactly where all these secular thinkers are and on their journey, who knows what circumstances are needed to actually get them across the line. Very often in my experience, as I'm sure it is in yours, Kyle, it's often some life event that happens to someone that finally gives them what they need to, to be able to fall into the arms of God. So for me, you know, we, we have to wait sometimes for people to, to make that journey for themselves. Well, Justin, that's exactly why you're here. You're here to judge all of these secular people. That's why you're on the show today. But no, like you do point that out in the book. And don't worry, guys, I'm not going to read the quote. But there, there's a quote where you talk about these people. They've gotten to where they need to get to intellectually, but there's a heart change that's required. Uh, it's it's uh, reminiscent of when Stephen Meyer was on the Joe Rogan experience here recently. And I wasn't terribly enthused with, with how he 
performed, I guess you could say, on that podcast. I think he kind of punted on the biblical inerrancy questions and, and things like that, uh, which, okay, whatever, he, he he was in the moment, you know, uh, who, who am I to be super critical? Mm. But he was basically like, look, there are things that I can't explain intellectually that happened to me and through me that is is super individual. So I would mm. never try to argue someone into the faith based on something that I experienced individually. And mm. like, I thought that that was a healthy answer, not mm. an intellectually satisfying one, mm. but healthy nonetheless. Um, mm. Now, chapter five, you get really into science. It's, it's called the alternative story of science. Um, around chapter five is when I started to realize that the surprising rebirth of belief in God is very similar to is atheism dead by mm. Eric Metaxas. Now that book is, 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 you know, not as accessible as your book, but it's still required reading in my opinion. Mm. But there was a heading in that chapter that I loved. It was science is neutral. Scientists are not. And so you have these scientists that for whatever reason get a pass and we just pretend like, oh, well, they're just scientists and they're just going to operate based on, you know, the, the best types of motives and all of that. But the problem is, is when these scientists that we've given this unearned moral superiority to are trying to derive ought from is, mm. we're just skipping over the entire time where their worldview doesn't give us that. And we're mm. allowing them to have this foundation from which they can't argue upon because there is no foundation. So, mm. so talk to me a little bit about that. You know, science is neutral, but scientists are clearly yeah. not. And and you only have to do a little research into the history of science to realize that that so much of it is about the personalities of the scientists. Okay, theories often didn't get a hearing because scientists of the time were so invested in their own theory and it's only once you get to the funerals of those scientists that an albert einstein can come in with you know quantum relativity and that can sort of take over from the newtonian mechanics and so on so it's a very human activity uh, and it's sometimes cast as somehow being completely objective and everything else but it's it's as human as the people who are doing it the, the, yeah. at the end of the day and likewise when scientists make pronouncements on god they are speaking from their own flawed human biases. They are not speaking from science because science itself really won't tell you where, you know, it'll give you some evidence that you might put into a philosophical argument for whether God exists, but it's it's not the kind of the arbiter on those kinds of questions. It's good for some things, but it's not going to tell you why you're here, what what value is. Uh, and likewise, you know, um, I've, I've, I, I cringe whenever I hear scientists kind of making moral pronouncements about, you know, that are somehow tied to science because the fact is, you can use science to feed the poor or you can use it to build an atomic bomb but it yep. you know it's neutral in that sense it's the humans who put the value in as to what you're going to do with it and and to that extent and science itself won't tell you what the good thing is to do that's where you need something else and in my view you know the christian story is the best example of how to build a flourishing world and how to use science to its best effect in that way so yeah it's it's just kind of it's just at the very outset really of the book of that chapter i wanted to make clear that exactly as you said science can tell you the way things are the is if you like but they can't but it won't tell you the way things ought to be um i mean i've got a little um tiktok video that went that went viral a little while ago where i talk about i have a cake in front of me that my wife has baked mm. and I, I kind of do a little skit where i'm a scientist and i'm saying i can tell you everything about this cake you know i can tell you its chemical composition the exact ratio of flour eggs and sugar uh, what it does to the synapses in my brain when i eat a slice and all of that and i say but if you ask me why the cake is here that i can't answer as a scientist mm -hmm. how would you find out 
you'd have to ask the person who made it. You'd have to ask my wife. And it's the same with us, with the universe. Science is great at picking it apart, looking at all the bits and pieces that make up, but it's not going to answer the question why you're here. Um, it's not going to yeah. ask the question why the universe is here. You have to go and ask the maker. So, so for me, it's a simple point, but I think it's one a lot of people miss because they think that science is this complete answer to everything, and it, and it just isn't. Well, the next time I come over to the UK, I would like to ask your wife, uh, you know, why she made the cake because I want to have some. I love cake, and so I would love to have some of your wife's cake. She is, she is but, a great cake maker. Uh, I, I'm very lucky in that respect. Well, I'll be I'll be the judge of that, Justin. Like, just don't don't you worry about. It. I'll figure that out. But you know, you talk about in the book too, like you talked about the example of boiling water. You know, why is there boiling water inside the kettle? You can explain it scientifically, but it can't explain that, Hey, you just wanted some tea. And I'm reminded, uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was someone that said when the scientists finally reach, you know, the peak, they'll realize that the theologians have been there for centuries oh, yeah. already. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so I, again, I don't know who that, that quote is attributed to, but that, that comes to mind. Now I was going to, I decided that I wasn't going to ask this question, but I just can't help myself. I have to sure. ask it. But if you don't mind, please be brief. And that's for my favor because sure. I'm just going to get in trouble. Okay. Okay. So one of the least interesting topics in all of Christendom to me is young earth versus, versus old earth. Mm -hmm. I could not care less about how old the earth is. I don't care. And I think mm -hmm. it's because it's not actually knowable and provable mm -hmm. in, in any way, shape or form. So why am I going to listen to three hours of debates between mm -hmm. this nerd versus that nerd trying to prove that this is exactly why it is. But the reason I bring that up is I feel like young earth people, the zealots of young earth, the people that have no intellectual space for any other explanation other than seven literal 24 hour days, as we understand 24 hour days, 6,000 years of the age of the earth, all that kind of stuff. Those people don't, they're not doing themselves favors. Uh, you know, when it comes to the debate between science and faith, because they seem to be drawing a line between science and faith and saying, it's all about the Bible, and if you don't read the Bible literally, you're a moron. And mm -hmm. the problem is, is the Bible, there's lots of different types of writings, obviously. There's mm -hmm. prophetic writings. There's wisdom literature. There's history. There's allegory. There's apocalyptic. There's poetry. There's all of that. And so if you read the entire Bible literally, you're going to think that Jesus was a vine. Mm -hmm. You're going to think that he's a door that you get to walk through, right? Mm -hmm. And so— the young earth thing, I, I just, I find it intellectually unstimulating because why would God give us all the tools by which to gauge his creation only to like pull the rug out from underneath us and be like, ha, gotcha. Mm, it's only mm, 6,000 years old. Trust me. Mm, you, you, you kind of get what mm, I'm saying? Mm, mm. Yeah. No, I, I feel very, very similar about that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a young earth creationist myself and I, 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 I'm really excited about the fact that actually our best science points in the direction of God. When you look at Big Bang cosmology, when you look at the fine tuning of the universe for life. Um, and the problem is with the young earth perspective is it, it wipes out that apologetic, which I think is a great shame because you have to insist on a 6,000 year old universe. Um, and that essentially we, we kind of have been duped in some way or, or mistaken about the age of the universe and, and everything else. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just agree with you there. Um, I, I also agree that, you know, those early ch chapters of Genesis, I respect my friends who take a different view from me on that, but I, I don't think we're meant to read them 
in a kind of as a scientific textbook. They're, that's not what they've been written to us for. And and to that extent, you know, I've always agreed with that view held by many of the church fathers that God's given us a book of revelation in scripture and we're meant to encounter Jesus through that. And he's given us another book of revelation in nature. And we're meant to understand that God reveals himself through that as well. And I think science is pointing towards God, our best science towards God rather than away from God. Okay, let's run away from that before people start showing up with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> so let's get into chapter six. That's mind, meaning, and the materialist. This is my favorite quote of the book. Okay, so here mm. we go. If our beliefs are themselves the result of an undirected, predetermined process that boils down to the movements of the atoms in our head, then how can we claim to have based those beliefs on reason and evidence? That's the boom shakalaka NBA jam. <laughs> like that's the dunk right there. That's the mic but drop moment. Yeah, that is the mic drop moment. And I've heard similar quotes from other people as well. It's like, if we're just the random spontaneous, you know, sparking of synapses, then how can we trust ourselves? Cause you'll have these, these high minded scientists, you know, again, they'll go on something like the Joe Rogan experience and they'll just kind of ha ha ha. And they'll laugh about all these silly simpletons that believe in this spaghetti monster in the sky that wants them wants to be worshiped. But it's like, you're arguing against yourself. It's literally sawing off the limb that you're sitting on. So talk to me mm, uh, yeah. a little bit more about that quote. I, I mean, one of the remarkable things that I've noticed, especially with the new atheists, is is that they've really gone hard for this kind of determinist view of reality, this idea that mm. the universe is basically just a clockwork thing where every physical cause can be explained by a previous physical cause. Now, the problem with this is that it is, it, it, it it like completely undercuts their position because at the same time they're saying we believe you need to you know base all your thinking on the best evidence you know you've got to reason yourself into your positions it's no good simply believing things without evidence but the problem is that the view that we live in a deterministic universe where every single thing including all of your thoughts feelings and actions have been completely predetermined from the beginning of time by an inexorable physical process that you had absolutely no control over, because that's what determinism is, yep. that cannot logically consist with the idea that you decide the things you believe in based on a process of reason and evidence, okay? Those two things are completely incompatible, because if, if what's actually happening at a chemical level, at an atomic level, is just physical processes in a kind of domino effect, this happened, that happened, that happened, there's no truth or falsity about any of that. There's no reasoning that takes place. All that's happening is chemistry, chemicals, stuff that eventually ends up in you saying, I'm an atheist. But it wasn't a reasoning process that got you there. And so there is this fundamental inconsistency that, that astounds me, actually, that so few atheists realize it, who who preach this kind of determinism, that we live in this completely closed system, this universe where it's every single thing can be determined just by the atoms and electrons doing their thing, and yet believe they've got the freedom to make up their mind about whether there's a God or not. You didn't, if, if you believe the first thing, then you can't believe the second thing. But of course, that means you can't believe anything because it was all given to you. Like the universe decided what you would believe from the moment it came into being, basically. So it, it, it's 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 something that, because it's a little bit more of a technical, philosophical thing to get your head around, not that many people engage with, but there have been very good people like C.S. Lewis and Alvin Plantinga who have developed this as what sometimes called the argument for God from reason. And, and I think it's really worth pressing home because for me, it, it is a huge inconsistency in the atheist worldview 
that they will insist that we live in this deterministic universe of purely material cause and effect, and yet try to have their cake and eat it by saying, but I believe you need to be a completely rational person and, and everything else. I mean, and that's without even touching things like morality, um, right sure. and wrong, you know, all of those also disappear in a deterministic universe. So any atheist who says, who kind of rails against religion for the awful things that it's done and tells you how you should live your life, you they they have absolutely no ground to stand on if, if they believe we're living in a deterministic universe because you had absolutely no choice in the matter. If you were going to be Hitler, you were always going to be Hitler. If you were going to mm -hmm. be, you know, the most wonderful, life-giving, compassionate person, Again, it wasn't you. It was the universe. It was the, the atoms and electrons doing their thing. There's, there's No one has any cause for feeling good about themselves or bad about themselves. It it just is what happens on, on that atheist perspective. So for me, yeah, the, the, it's something I get quite passionate about, but it's, it's, it's just this massive contradiction in the worldview as far as I can see. Well, and also, since you brought up Hitler, I guess I'm allowed to talk about him now because that's <laughs> that's another name that shall not be named. What is the bad guy from Harry Potter? I can't I can't understand the reference. Who's the oh, guy Voldemort. you can't say his name? Voldemort. Voldemort. That's what that's yeah. what you get when you don't read the books or watch the movie. Sorry, kids. I don't know who Voldemort <laughs> is. But the thing about it too is, if you take their worldview of determinism to its logical conclusion, you should be. This sounds so crazy. Someone's going to clip this out later and you know take it out of context. But you should be ecstatic that Hitler killed 6 million Jews. You should be ecstatic because he was the superior chimp and he took out all of the inferior chimps. He was the dominant alpha chimp that got a bunch of other chimps to take advantage of these lesser than chimps. Like, again, you should think that that was a great thing because guess what? All the, you know, gay people that they killed, all the Jews, all the people with Down syndrome, all the people that were in the infirmaries, he got rid of all that bad DNA, right? Like that's, that's the, that is the worldview in the nutshell. It is a Nazi-esque type of worldview. So I'm going to jump as far away from what I just said again, so nobody <laughs> clicks it out later. Let's get into the last chapter as we start to round ish towards a close here. The last chapter is the surprising rebirth of belief in God, the, the same namesake as the book itself. And in that chapter, you talk about a term that was coined by Sky Jathani, I think is how uh, they mm, say their last mm, name, mm. but it's the danger of the rise of what they call the evangelical industrial complex. So that's obviously a play on words with the military industrial complex, which we're all mm. becoming more aware of, but it's this idea of celebrity pastors you know, basically not really holding hands of, you know, widows in, in the hospital, but, you know, mm. doing things for TikTok or for Instagram, mm. big mm. money churches, all the scandals therein, you know, making decisions based on growth and not mm. Christ. As I mm. mentioned earlier, these pastors that are more like CEOs uh, mm. at, at the head of a board of directors, as opposed to a senior pastor at the head of an elder board, at the head of a church type of a thing. Mm. Why is the evangelical industrial complex actually hurting people's uh, belief in God or really the rebirth of belief in God? Yeah, I I, I mean, I, that chapter, I only sort of briefly do a couple of paragraphs, but my, my concern there was to point out the fact that if we are seeing this potential kind of incoming tide of people looking for meaning, looking for purpose, and maybe considering the Christian worldview again, will the church be ready to receive them? And, and my worry is that particularly in the evangelical church in the West, 
um, it's been going through a time of reckoning, which suggests that it, it's not in a good fit place to do that because we have been seeing, sadly, a lot of these celebrity pastors, scandals, falls from grace. Um, and generally, the evangelical church kind of get really not keeping its eye on the main thing, which is about bringing people into this this hope, this new life with Christ, but about, as you say, kind of being more concerned with growth metrics and everything else and sort of um, in some ways kind of copying some of the, the standards of the world. Um, and I think, I think in a way, the fact that we have gone through this painful period where we've seen the collapse of certain ministries because of some of the scandals that have been going on, it's, we need to learn the lessons from that. We need to, to see that actually sometimes God's purposes will be done in spite of us rather than because of us, you know, that, that God doesn't necessarily need our particular version of church in order to see people come to him. Uh, and it might be that something else is going to come up if, if the church is no longer, if certain parts of the church are no longer fit for purpose, then, then, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. It's just that God will be raising up a different kind of church, a different people. So I just think we're in one of those moments where probably um, we, we're going to find out and that there'll be a kind of, yeah, the, the weed, the, the tares and the wheat will kind of be separated. There's going to be some ministries, some churches, which I think are going to be cast into the fire because they're not following Christ. They're not actually doing, they're not doing that faithful thing of just um, preaching the gospel and bringing people through. Um, they're, they're, they're more concerned with, yeah, the celebrity stuff, the kind of the growth stuff and everything else. But the, actually there is going to be um, still a container. There has always been a container. The church has gone through many periods of change, um, certain forms of church dying off, new forms of church coming up and being re-energized. And we're, I think we're in the middle of one of those kind of revolutions in the church. And I, I firmly believe that that God will get his way, that there will be, you know, when, when people are ready to come back to the Christian story, they'll find a church that's waiting for them to be able to, to be that, that story, that family again for them. It just might not be the church that we've been trying to build in lots of parts of the West. And, and, and I, I don't reserve my, you know, judgment here just for those evangelical subculture things. I think there's lots of the mainstream church, which is already dying on its feet because it's forgotten the gospel because it's not actually doing what, what it was supposed to do. And likewise, if that's no longer fit for purpose, it will wither on the vine. It will, you know, it'll go away and whatever the next thing is that God has will, will, will come up in its place. Uh, one of the interesting things, just to stick with this for a moment, is uh, when I have spoken to some of these secular intellectuals who seem drawn to the Christian story, the one thing they've often said to me is, you're not going to persuade me to come to church if it's just a warmed over version of the secular world that I already exist yep. in. Okay. I want, if I was going to convert, I'd want the real thing. Okay. I'd want, I, I want the proper doctrine. I, I don't want some kind of mm. dumbed down, diluted kind of, let's just apologize for all the weird aspects of Christianity version of Christianity. Cause I can get that in the world that, you know, it's hardly worth converting if, if that's all I'm getting. So I just think that's a real, really important for churches to recognize that that kind of lowering the bar um, isn't going to get more people into the church. It'll just make the church look more like the world. And then people will be like, well, I've, I can get what you're offering, you know, at the golf club or by going to a Coldplay concert. I don't need, I don't need it from church. So I, th I think that's a really important message to, you know, uh, the way I put it in the book is keep Christianity weird because actually um, we are weird and yeah. we need to be weird because otherwise we won't stand out from, from what's already on offer. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about next, but you know, we've talked about Ravi, Voldemort, Hitler, and young earth creationists, all things you're not allowed to bring up. So I'm going to bring up another thing you're not allowed to bring up, COVID. What COVID Ooh. did with a lot of minister, minis 
ministries rather in churches is to create a, div- a dividing line. Mm. Is your church squishy or is it not? And in mm. my particular community, the church I was going to is a church that's been around for 30 years and it's just kind of slowly grown, slowly grown, slowly grown during mm. COVID though. And in the months after explosive growth, wow. part of that is to do with a, a addition of built onto mm. the church, mm. but there were two huge ministries in our area, two enormous churches. One is the largest church in America, Life Church, and another one called mm. Henderson Hills. There were some different things happening at those churches, mm. and droves of families left those churches to come to the church that I go to, Faith Bible. And that's not, hey, Faith Bible is the best. We're at the mm. top of the podium. But I think COVID revealed some unhealth and some squishiness in the ideologies and theologies of these ministries and these ministers in particular. And people were like, "Mm, wait a minute, like I got kids here. And like, Mm, mm, maybe even if I don't believe it, like, I think we got to go somewhere where there's a little bit more depth and we're mm, kind of the, we're the, we're the Bible church, if you will. Like mm, it's, it's expository mm, preaching. It's not exciting by any stretch mm, of the imagination, mm, but it's mm, deep. Like we're not mm, being entertained, we're being fed. And so it's a little mm, bit different there. Mm, but mm, I do mm. want to talk about the the thing you, you mentioned in your last chapter, which is keep Christianity weird. And we talked about this a little bit last time. And to be honest, I didn't like your answer. And so that's why I'm bringing it up again. And so part of the thing of being weird, Justin, is not taking our cues from culture about how we should act. And so the last time you were on the show, we talked about trans pronoun hospitality, as it's called, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. how a biological male sitting before you, they are demanding that you use female pronouns and you go, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to offend you. So I'll just use pronouns. I will lie so that you feel better. Part of the thing about being weird is saying, I'm so sorry. I can't do that for you. Like if Mm, someone claims mm. they're a toaster, I'm not going to shove bread up their rear end. Like I'm going to be like, no, this is not hospitable for me to treat you like a toaster in the same way, it's not hospitable of me to treat you as a woman and to refer to you as such. So that's a specific example, but I want to broaden mm, it out mm, a little mm, bit. Mm. How can we keep Christianity, Christianity weird if we're just playing secular songs at church, doing the TED Talks that everyone's used to, using made-up nonsense pronouns, putting litter boxes in our bathrooms for the furries that come through the door? Like, where do we draw the line, Justin? <laughs> I, th- I think I think it's going to be different for different people, isn't it? Because yeah. so much of this is kind of culturally instantiated, and um, and I agree that actually there is a point where you have to tell the truth, where you have to sort of be upfront with people and say, look, um, the more loving thing is is to give you what I believe is actually the truth in this matter. My only concern here, Kyle, is that it's so easy, I think, for the church to get drawn into a kind of the culture war and just become another kind of clanging symbol in in what is just this constant battle now between the left and right and so on. And while I think the church should take a stance for truth because it needs to be clear on on where it stands on issues and it, you know you don't you know you you have to do that. At the same time it it should also not be just playing by the rules of the culture which is just about this polarization and basically you know building up your barricades against the other side and doing everything you can to demolish them because the the person i want to follow is not you know jordan peterson or ben shapiro it's jesus okay it's like i want to see how did jesus deal with people and he basically spent a lot of time with the people who were on the margins you know who were the kind of you know considered to be unfit or whatever by the religious authorities 
no one who came into the presence of Jesus left the same as they'd arrived. Okay. He, he transformed everyone. So there was this grace and there was this truth. And that is what Christianity is. It's grace and truth. So I think we'd have to have churches where we can, we can sit down and break bread with someone we may disagree with if they're transgender or whatever, you know, that, that we don't simply treat them as someone beyond the pale who we are just going to kind of treat as some kind of, you know, enemy outsider. Jesus asked more of us than that. He says, no, sit down with them and treat them as a brother or sister, treat them as a human being, someone made in my image. And that, I just think that you've got so much more chance of transformation happening when that happens. Um, so it's not that I disagree with you because I think you do have to preach truth, but the way Jesus did it was different to the way our culture does it. And I just think that that with the church needs to look and feel different to the culture in that way. So I like some things that you just said. I don't like it. So let me, so let me draw the line. I'm glad you brought up Ben Shapiro because I've listened to Ben Shapiro for years. I think he's ridiculously smart. Sometimes though, he gets me fired up to go dunk on the libs. Like that's mm. kind of the idea. Like I'm going to own the libs and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not a conservative Christian. I'm a Christian conservative. Christian comes right. first. Good. But the thing that I see whenever I look at Jesus's life is he was very forward about pointing out people's sin. Mm. But, and, and here's the other thing that's interesting. People love to say that Jesus hung out with sinners. It's the exact opposite. Sinners hung out with Jesus. Like yeah. they wanted to be around this, this mm -hmm. guy and they didn't know why exactly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. call it the Holy spirit, call it indigestion. They were just pulled in. They like, mm -hmm. they just couldn't help themselves. And so it's like, how I guess the 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 needle that we all have to thread, Justin, is how can we be so attractive to non-believers mm -hmm. while also not selling ourselves down the river just to get a few pats on the head by people Absolutely. on Twitter? I I couldn't agree more. I and and I think that that is where the rubber hits the road, and and it's mm -hmm. where you you have to kind of you know say, look, there, there's a there's some things I'm not prepared to do just for the sake of appearing politically correct and 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 you because in the end i don't think i i don't think just playing the rule by the rules of the cultural will actually actually in the end get you christ followers um i i think what we're called to do is to be radical in the in the people we're willing to be around and to to, to kind of say i'm not gonna just you know exclude you because you are a republican or a democrat or whoever but actually um, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk and I'm going to show you grace. So the, the church has to be this place of grace. I think cancel culture is one of the worst things I think about about this, you know, in our, in our present culture. And the church has to be a place where we can own, own our mistakes and have a fresh start. And and if and that's about actually allowing people the grace to kind of be who they are, not come in, you know, as perfect ready-made Christians, but but where where we'll sit down and we'll we'll try and go on this journey together and and i, I it's really difficult you know because it, it is much easier to just kind of own the libs and do that kind of way of of, of engaging the culture it's it's much easier and kind of you feel better about yourself it, it's much more difficult i think to do the, the genuine let's actually take the jesus approach to this who who wasn't willing to just you know be defined by either the left or the right of his day you know he he walked his own unique path and and you know change the world because of it and i just think we've got to we've got to take that harder path we can't we can't just be lazy and and just you know do it the way the world does it 
Well, I will tell you, it is way more fun to own the libs than it is to sit down over coffee. I will just admit that. I'm man enough to admit that. But, you know, we're, we're over our bargained amount of time, so we'll make this the last question of the day. We need to put a bow on this interview and a bow on the new book. But this is going to come as a shock to people that have listened to our three conversations, and we're an hour and a half in now. You're a fairly optimistic guy. I'm a fairly pessimistic guy. Mm. But for a pessimist like me, why are you so optimistic about the future of Christianity? Because of Jesus, really, I, I just think we've got the best thing in the universe uh, on our side. And however bad it looks right now, however you know awful the culture looks, whatever the statistics tell us about church decline and the rise of the nuns, I, I you know maybe it's the Calvinist again coming out of me. I, I just think God God's mm. in control, and actually there will be we we are seeing one little moment of a much bigger picture, and there's always been you know, as Chesterton said, Christianity has died a thousand deaths, but it has always risen again because it has a God who knew his way out of the grave. And I think I'm just kind of pointing the ways in which I think we might be seeing God walking out of the grave again in our culture. And and I'm, I'm optimistic in that sense, because I think, you know, we, yeah, if it's just down to us, if we, if the atheist story is true and we're all just basically floating around as meat sacks in a meaningless universe, yeah, then yeah, there's really no reason to be optimistic. <laughs> We're probably going to blow ourselves up or, you know, you know, explode each other on Twitter or something. Um, but thank God that is not the story of reality. That is not the truth about the way the universe is. We have a God who, who created us for a purpose. We're in a mess. It's always been that way, but God the, the great thing about these stories is that God rescues people from their messes. And, and I believe that's ha- going to happen in our generation too. Well, Justin, you're a pro. We talked about a lot. We didn't talk about it all, but we talked about a lot, but that's all <laughs> for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Only that if you want to get hold of the book, you can go to my website, justinbriley.com. I'll even um, send you a signed copy if you want it uh, with my own personal signature on it. So um, do, do go there if you want to get hold of the book. Um, also, perhaps by the time the show lands, um, we'll, we'll, we're going to be putting out a special podcast as well based on the book. So if you like your podcast, do, do check out the surprising rebirth of belief in God. But thank you for having me on. Absolutely. If that does come out by then, make sure to give me the link. We'll put that in the show notes. Justin Briarly, thank you for coming back on A Daunted Life of Man's podcast. It, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kyle. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the third appearance of Justin Briarly on our show. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Add on Daunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Justin's website where you can check out all the things he's doing and get a copy of the book. If you don't like shopping there, I've also got a link for Amazon so you can pick it up there. Again, the surprising rebirth of belief in God, it is out now. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self title debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah